Hey, it's Brian, back with another Burr Month's bonus episode for those of us getting an early start on the 2020 Christmas season. And if you're just joining us, welcome, and a happy Burr Month to you. You're joining us in the midst of a little mini-series where I'm reading the 1918 YA novel Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. I figured the theme of A Christmas Against the Odds was pretty fitting for 2020. Make sure you listen from the beginning, and this is installment number three. Last time we left the girls, they were on a train ride, and one of them was surprised by a mysterious letter. Stay subscribed so you don't miss an installment. They arrive every few days and include one or two or maybe three chapters. And I've got plenty more Christmas spirit lined up for the Burr months and, of course, the proper Christmas season, so I'm glad to have you here. But before we get to that, here are my two standard announcements. First, I want to remind you that it is never too early to send a Christmas memory to appear on an episode this season. Simply record a voice memo into your phone and then send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean, and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. And it's never too early to start sending Christmas cards, so how about I send you one? All you have to do is review the show on Apple Podcasts and then get in touch with me with your mailing address. I'll be happy to send you an official Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Again, you can reach out to me at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, let's find out more about that mysterious letter as we once again join the Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains. Chapter 4. Studying the Mystery Is there any doubt that Marion Stanlock, after reading letter number 2, was seriously in doubt as to whether number 1 was from the scouts who had promised another surprise for the Campfire Girls in the near future? Judge for yourself. Here is number one. Something doing, look out. Something doing, look out. Something doing, look out. That was all. The second letter read thus. Miss Stanlock, this is to serve you with warning not to take your friends with you to Holly Hill this vacation to work among the poor families of the striking miners. We know that move of yours is inspired by the rankest hypocrisy, that you have no genuine desire to do anything for our starving families. This move of yours, we know, was planned by that villainous father of yours to cloud the big issue of our fight. If you do carry out your plans, some of you are liable to get hurt, and it need not surprise anybody if some of you never get back to Westmoreland alive. Go slow. Be careful. Look out. Marion was not easily panic-stricken, but it is of the nature of a truism to say that this letter applied the severest test to her nerves. That the writer was in deep earnest she had no reason to doubt. She had read of so many crimes preceded by threatening letters of this sort that the suggestion did not come to her to regard this one lightly. Although there was no common basis for comparing the handwriting of the two missives, one being lettered in Roman capitals and the other in ordinary script, nevertheless she quickly dismissed the first suspicion that letter number one was written by Clifford Long or some other scout of Spring Lake Academy. Both ended with the words, look out. Plainly, this was a result of carelessness on the part of the writer. Evidently, he had planned to cause her to believe that the two letters were written by different persons, for he had taken the pains of differentiating the superscriptions on the envelopes as well as the contents within. 
But now the question was, what should she do? It was no more than fair and just for her to inform the girls what they might expect if they attempted to carry out their original plan, but what method should she pursue to convey to them this information? She might go at the matter bluntly and create something of a panic. Then again, she might handle it so that the best possible result could be obtained in a quiet and orderly manner. Marion felt in this crisis that a great responsibility rested on her to handle the problem with all the skill and intelligence at her command. She longed for the counsel of an older and more experienced head, but there was none present except Miss Ladd, the guardian of the fire, to whom she might go with her story. The latter, though she came well within the requirements of the National Board to fill the position which she held, was nevertheless a young woman in the sensitive sense of the phrase, and could hardly be expected to give the best executive advice under the circumstances. Marion realized that it was her duty to exhibit to Miss Ladd the letters she had received, but if she did this at once, the act would amount to turning the whole matter over to her and relinquishing the initiative herself, she reasoned. Marion was naturally aggressive, and she was not favorably impressed with the idea of leaving the affair in the hands of another unless that person were peculiarly fitted to handle it. As she sat studying over the problem, she suddenly became conscious of the presence of another person close beside her, and looking up, she saw Helen Nash with an expression of startled intelligence in her eyes. Apparently, her attention had been attracted by the crude drawing of a skull and crossbones at the close of the letter, lying open in her lap. "'I beg your pardon, Marion,' said Helen, with an evident effort at self-control. "'I didn't mean to intrude. I hope you'll forgive me for something quite unintentional.' "'Certainly, Helen,' Marion replied generously. "'And since a chance look has informed you of the nature of the letters, and I want to talk this affair over with somebody, I think I may as well talk it over with you.' Let's go down to the other end of the car, where we're less likely to be disturbed. Accordingly, they moved up to the front of the car, where they took possession of two chairs and soon were so deeply absorbed in the problem at hand as to excite the wonder and curiosity of the other campfire girls. Marion handed the two anonymous letters to her friend without introductory remark, and the latter read them. As Marion watched the expression on the reader's face, she was forced to admit to herself that right then, under those seemingly impersonal circumstances, Helen's habitual strangeness of manner was more pronounced than she had ever before known it to be. This girl of impenetrable secrecy read the letters, seemingly with an abstraction amounting almost to inattention, while physically she appeared to shrink from something that to her alone was visible and real. As she finished reading, Helen looked up at her friend, and the gaze of penetrating curiosity that she saw in Marion's eyes caused her to blush with confusion. Unable to meet her friend's gaze steadily, she shifted her eyes toward the most interesting part of the car, the floor, and said, That looks like a dangerous letter. It ought to be turned over to the police as soon as possible. Both of them, don't you think? Marion inquired. Why? I don't see anything in the shorter one. My guess would be that it was written by your cousin or one of his friends. But do you notice the way that they both ended? The same words, Marion insisted. Yes, I noticed that, Helen replied slowly. But that is such a common, ordinary expression, almost like a, an, or the, that it doesn't mean much to me here. Where are these letters postmarked? Both in Westmoreland. That's something in favor of your suspicion that both letters were written by the same person, Helen admitted. Still, it doesn't convince me. 
You wouldn't expect the Spring Lake boys to mail a letter like the shorter one at Spring Lake, would you? That would stamp its identity right away. You are sure those letters were written by different persons? Marion inquired curiously. I don't think it makes any difference whether they were or not, Helen answered more decisively than she had spoken before. It is the skull and crossbones letter that you're most interested in. I think you can disregard the other entirely. I would say this, however, that if both were written by one person, you have less to fear than if the shorter one was written by your cousin or one of your friends. Why? Because if one person wrote both of them, he is probably suffering from softening of the brain. But if the person who wrote the longer one did not write the shorter one, there is more likelihood that he means business and will attempt to carry out his threat. I never realized you were such a Sherlock Holmes, Marion exclaimed enthusiastically, while the suggestion came to her that perhaps a genius for this sort of thing accounted for her friend's peculiarities. You ought to be a detective for a department store to catch shoplifters. Thanks, Marion, for the compliment, but I'm not inclined that way. I'd rather do something in this case to keep our vacation plans from ending in trouble. I was looking for someone who could advise me, Marion said, and now I am convinced that you are just the person I was looking for. What do you think I ought to do, Helen? All the girls ought to know about this letter, Helen replied, but you can't go and just blurt out anything so sensational. We must break the news gently, as they say in melodrama. I wish we hadn't come. So do I, Marion replied, but with just a suggestion of disappointment in her voice. Not that I'm afraid of getting hurt, Helen added hastily, realizing the suspicion of cowardice that might rest against her. Still, if my advice had been asked, I would have argued against this very dangerous vacation scheme of yours. Why? inquired Marion in a tone of disappointment. Because of the very situation complained about in that Skull and Crossbones letter. I hope I don't hurt your feelings, Marion, but it is very natural for some of these rough miners to suspect that your plan was cooked up by your father to pull the wool over their eyes, and to regard you as a tool employed by him to put the scheme into operation. Some of the girls' parents raised the objection that there might be danger in a mining district during a strike, but none of them suggested anything of this sort, Marion remarked with humble anxiety. I explained to them that there could hardly be any danger even if the strikers should get ugly, as the mines are some distance away from where we live, and any violence on the part of the miners would surely be committed at the scene of their labors. This seemed to satisfy them. Most of the miners live at the south end of town or along the electric line running from Holly Hill to the mines. That doesn't make much difference if the miners once get it into their heads that the girls are being used to pull over a confidence game on them, Helen argued authoritatively. Miners are peculiar people, especially if they are led by radical leaders of aggressive purpose. They believe that they are a badly misused set, turning out the wealth to the wealthy who repay them by holding them in contempt, keeping their wages down to a minimum, and pressing them into social and political subjection. Where did you learn all that, Helen? Marion asked wonderingly. You're not even studying sociology at school, and you talk like a person of experience. My father was a miner, Helen began. Then she stopped, and Marion saw from the expression in her eyes and the twitch in her mouth that a big lump in her throat had interrupted her explanation. She seemed to be making an effort to continue, but was unable to do so. Never mind, Helen, said Marion, taking her hand tenderly into her own. I am more convinced than ever that I have found just the right person to advise me when I laid this matter before you. We will try to work this problem out together. 
Meanwhile, we must take Miss Ladd into our confidence. Why, here she is now. Chapter 5 Girls Courageous What's the matter, girls? You look as if you had the weight of the world on your shoulders. Miss Ladd spoke these words lightly as if to pass judgment on the conference as entirely too serious for a Christmas holiday occasion. Marion and Helen did not respond in tones of joviality as might have been expected. They met her jocular reproach with expressions of such serious portent that the guardian of the fire could no longer look upon it as a calling for words of levity. What's the matter, girls? She repeated more seriously. You look worried. Sit down, Miss Ladd, and read these letters I received last night, said Marion, without any exchange of tone or manner. They will explain the whole thing. We were just about to call you aside to lay our trouble before you. Trouble, Miss Ladd repeated deprecatingly. I hope it isn't as bad as that. She drew an upholstered armchair close to the girls and began at once to examine the letters that Marion handed to her. Marion and Helen watched her closely as she read, but the guardian of the flamingo fire indicated her strength of character by a stern immobility of countenance until she had finished both letters. Then she looked at Marion steadily and said inquiringly, I suppose you have no idea who wrote these letters? Not the slightest, replied the girl addressed, unless the shorter one was written and mailed by some of the Boy Scouts at Spring Lake. Helen thinks it was, and I'm inclined to believe with her that it doesn't make much of a difference to us who wrote it. The other letter is the one we're most interested in. I agree with you thoroughly, said Miss Ladd energetically, and we have got to do something to prevent him from carrying out his threat. Ought we to inform the other girls now, asked Marion with a sense of growing courage, for she felt that in the campfire's guardian she had found elements of wise counsel extending even beyond the young woman's experience. Why, yes, Miss Ladd replied. I see no reason for delay. I'd rather tell them now than just before we get over to Holly Hill. If we tell them now, they'll have a couple of hours in which to stiffen their courage. There are eleven girls besides you two. Suppose you call them in three lots in succession, four, four, and three, and we'll tell them quietly what has occurred and give them a little lecture on how they should meet this crisis. All right, said Marion, rising. I'll bring the first four, and you get your lecture ready. It's already ready, said the guardian reassuringly. It's so simple that I have no need for preparation. I'm afraid I need some drill in the best means and methods of reading character, Marion told herself as she walked back to the rear of the car. I was really afraid to take the matter up with Helen or Miss Ladd, for fear lest they recommend something foolish. Now it appears that each of them has a very clever head on her shoulders. Maybe I'll find the other girls possessed of just as good qualities. If I do, this day will have brought forth an important revelation to me that the average girl, after all, is a pretty level-headed sort of person. Well, here's hoping for the best. Marion selected the four girls farthest in front and asked them to approach the forward end of the car. They did so with some appearance of apprehension, for by this time all the girls had begun to suspect that something unusual was doing. This appeared to be evident also to the half-dozen other passengers on the car, whose curious attention naturally was directed toward the forward group of girls. All of the girls received the information relative to the anonymous letters so calmly that Marion felt just a little bit foolish because of her groundless misjudgment of them. After the last group had read the letters and discussed the situation with the trio of informants, she spoke thus to them. Girls, you are real heroines, or have in you the stuff that makes heroines, and that is about the same thing. 
You take this as calmly as if it were an ordinary everyday affair in the movies. I'm proud of you. We ought to be wearing Carnegie medals, oughtn't we, girls? said Julietta Hyde, blinking comically. We can throttle anything from a blackhand agent to a ghost. No, you ought to be wearing honor pins for things well done, Miss Ladd corrected. We leave the Carnegie medals for those who haven't any campfire scheme of honors. But really, girls, you have all conducted yourselves admirably in this affair. We will hope it won't result in anything very serious, but meanwhile, we must take proper precautions. Shall we have to give up our vacation to Holly Hill on account of this? asked Catherine Crane, almost dejectedly, as if she were being sentenced to prison for violating a Connecticut blue law. That is up to you girls and the conditions that develop, answered Miss Ladd. As soon as we get to Holly Hill, we will take up the matter with the proper authorities and try to determine what the outlook is. My father will get busy as soon as he hears about this, said Marion. I think we can leave everything to his management. He will probably advise us to give up the idea of doing anything for the strikers' families and have as good a time as we can entertaining ourselves at home. Oh, I hope not, Catherine explained, and the manner in which she spoke indicated how much she had her heart set on the work that they had planned to do. It would be too bad to give up, Marion said earnestly, for I understand some of those families are greatly in need of assistance. There is not only much hunger and privation among them, but considerable sickness among the children. We can't do a whole lot in two weeks, but we can do something, and our training as campfire girls and in our nursing classes fits us to be of much assistance to them. It is a shame that they should take an attitude so hostile to their own interests. They probably don't understand your father or they wouldn't be striking now, said Miss Ladd. I'm sure they wouldn't, Marion testified vigorously. I've often heard father say that he would like to do more for the men and their families, but conditions tied his hands. Many of the miners are good fellows, but they get mistaken ideas in their heads, and it's impossible for anyone whom they once put under suspicion to convince them that they are in the wrong. Do you know, girls, interposed Violet Monday enthusiastically, I believe we are going to get a lot out of this vacation experience, whatever happens. I'm interested in what Marion tells us about the miners. Let's make a study of coal mining, hold up everyone we can for information, and watch our chance to help the poor families and their sick children whenever we can without doing anything foolhardy. That's a good idea, said Miss Ladd. We'll keep that in mind, and if Marion's father's advice is favorable, we'll take it up. The train arrived at Holly Hill shortly after 2 p.m. Mr. Stanlock's touring car and two taxicabs were waiting at the station to convey the girls to Marion's home. The run to a spacious, half-rustic Stanlock residence at the northeast edge of the city occupied about 15 minutes and was without noticeable incident. The cars passed through a massive iron gateway, up a winding gravel-bedded drive, and stopped near a white-pillared pergola connected with a large colonial house by a vine-covered walk running up to a porticoed side entrance. Mrs. Stanlock met them at the door, and the travelers were speedily accommodated with the usual journey-end attentions. Marion then inquired for her father, but Mr. Stanlock had gone to his office early in the day and would not return until dinner time. So the girl hostess decided that she must let the problem uppermost in her mind rest unsettled a few hours longer. Evening came, but Mr. Stanlock did not appear. Wondering at this delay, Mrs. Stanlock called up to his office but learned that he had left an hour and a half before, supposedly for home. How did he leave? Mrs. Stanlock inquired nervously. In his automobile, was the answer. 
That being the case, he ought to have been home more than an hour ago. His office was in the city and he could easily make the run in 15 minutes. Thoroughly alarmed, Mrs. Stanlock called up the police, stated the circumstances, and asked that a search be made for her husband. Two hours more elapsed and the whole neighborhood was alarmed. The news spread rapidly and was communicated by phone to most of Mr. Stanlock's friends and acquaintances throughout the city. The search was growing in scope and sensation. Treachery was suspected, a tragedy was feared. Then, suddenly and calmly, Mr. Stanlock reappeared at home, driving the machine himself. He had a thrilling story to tell of his experiences. Well, what better way to end an installment of the story than with the promise of something thrilling when we pick it back up again? Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you can stand the suspense between now and next time. I'll be back before you know it. Until then, I'll trust you to fill your Burr Month's days with festive fun. And until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. I love hearing from you, and I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. You can drop a line anytime to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you haven't yet joined the private Christmas Past Facebook group, now's as good a day as any because we are celebrating the Burr months and beyond. Until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>